This episode contains references to domestic violence, sexual violence, and violence against women in particular. There are also discussions of drug use, addiction, gang violence. Not suitable for listeners under 18 years of age. Please use caution when listening. So this season on Panic Button, we have heard about one man in particular all the way from his early childhood years, his father's criminal activity and subsequent incarceration. And then we've gotten into really heavy into his abusive relationships with mainly four women in particular. And we have kind of tried to dissect for you some of the tactics that people who use coercive control typically use against their partners. And we've tried to bring to light some of the more obscure forms of abuse, post-separation abuse, and legal abuse. But today, we're going to take our host and know-it-all hats off. (laughs) It's not just the us show anymore (laughs) today. We we did this last season, and it was really fun and kind of a nice breath of fresh air for the listeners who were like so inundated with such a heavy story. And also for us to hear from people who work in this field, these fields every day, what it's like for them on the ground. And so this episode is what we call Ask the Experts. Ask the Experts. And we have four experts that are going to be joining us today. That's right. We have Ashley Nix, who is the head of the Special Victims Unit at the Tulsa County District Attorney's Office. We have Detective Amy Hall, who is in the Family Violence Unit with the Tulsa Police Department. Xavier Graves, who works for Restorative Justice Institute of Oklahoma. And Aurelius Francisco, who is the founder and leader of the Foundation for Liberating Minds. And you might have noticed when Leslie was describing them, two of them are deeply embedded in our law enforcement community. And we're very grateful for them for being here with us on this panel And then two of them represent sort of community partners that work on violence prevention, on restorative justice, and what they call transformative justice. And we think after studying this case and many other cases that we deal with, that it's going to take a combination of the two. And we don't feel like we need to choose between traditional law enforcement protection and hoping and craving for a better world where there's less violence where there's less domestic violence and there's less people being hurt and less trauma being passed on. And so we're going to let them and us kind of talk through this, this situation with their expertise in mind, and we hope you enjoy. Okay, so here we go. Leslie, we're going to be here today recording episode eight, which is our expert panel. We do this every season. At least we did it last season and we're doing it this season. All two seasons. We have done an expert panel. Yeah. And it's been incredibly valuable to our listeners after hearing some of the more narrative pieces and hearing from so many people who have been impacted by this one guy. It's very helpful to hear from the people who work on the ground and from people who are trying to make the system better uh, in numerous different ways. And so we've we've brought four experts together uh, tonight, and we're going to let them introduce themselves to you. And then we're going to ask them some questions, and they're going to kind of riff on each other, and it's going to be a great conversation. So first, I'm going to let Detective Amy Hall from the Tulsa Police Department introduce herself, and then we'll just pass it around. 
Hi, I'm Detective Amy Hall. I'm with the Tulsa Police Department Family Violence Unit. Uh, I have been in the unit for uh, about four years and the department for uh, almost 17 years. And next we'll hear from Xavier Graves with the Restorative Justice Institute of Oklahoma. Hello, my name is Xavier Graves. I am the director of the Restorative Justice Institute of Oklahoma. Our mission is just to um, transform the inequitable and retributive systems and cultures in Oklahoma. Um, and really we wanna bring a healing component to our justice system that in order for us to actually be able to live whole lives, um, we gotta internally heal, but as well community heal. Um, so we do that through restorative justice and transformative justice practices. And then we'll hear from Ashley Nix, who is the director of the SVU at the Tulsa District Attorney's Office. Yeah, so I'm Ashley Nix, and I've been with the District Attorney's Office since 2016 and spent most, for the most part of the entirety of my career there. Um, and so as the director of our Special Victims Unit, I supervise our misdemeanor and felony domestic violence cases, as well as sex sexual assault-based crimes, um, 14 and up. And then we'll hear from Aurelius Francisco. Hello, my name is Aurelius with the Foundation for Liberating Minds. We're a community-based organization here in Oklahoma City. We do work all across the state, working to disrupt the root causes of oppression and marginalization through transformative education. Um, and one of the major areas that we focus in on is the criminal legal system, raising awareness around uh, the injustices baked into the system, uh, pushing people to action and organizing around the system, and then also to build up uh, community-based alternatives uh, to the system, like Xavier was talking about, where restorative and transformative justice, but also pushing resources into the community uh, to prevent harm and violence as well. And my name is Colleen McCarty. And I'm Leslie Briggs, and this is episode eight. The panic button season two, Operation Wildfire. Uh, let's ask the experts. So I'm going to kick it off. I The first question that I have is sort of, it's riddled with an assumption. So if you disagree with that assumption, I want you to say that. I'm going to start with you, Detective. I'd like to know, you know, we've heard from some of the survivors on this season that they didn't feel like they could really get good accountability from the criminal justice system in some of the domestic violence cases, like they were trying to pursue police action or they felt like they couldn't get the police to act or they couldn't get the criminal legal system to respond in a meaningful way. And I would just be curious to hear like what you've seen in the field and, and what you think about like some, some of that. Like, is there, is there accountability? Why, and if, if not, why is it so elusive? Um, I think, um, you know, of course, everything starts in the field. So patrol uniformed officer. Um, we, since I've been in here, um, those of us in here are very passionate about what we do. Um, we read, obviously, a lot of reports. Um, we kind of talked before um, we started that my unit um, now with six uh, detectives, two supervisors, um, last year, we had um, well over 10,000 cases. Um, those that, um, of course, are assigned to us, we go through. Um, and when we read those reports and we don't um, see the the level um, of documentation, questions, whatever, um, either us or one of our supervisors will follow up 
um, with that officer, that officer's supervisor, and um, to say, hey, you, know, you should have done X, Y, Z, or, you know, hey, next time, blah, blah, blah. Um, I think part of it, too, with domestic violence being such a part of a high call volume um, that some may get into a routine of, hey, we do this all the time. You go in, you ask the basic questions and you're done. And I think that that's where the compassion is lost and a victim may feel, you know, hey, we're 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 not getting what we need out of this. We we want to seek justice, Um, you know. But again, when it when it hits our desk, um, we that are in here now um, are very compassionate about what we do or we wouldn't be here um, because you would you wouldn't want to be here because of the burnout um, if you didn't have, you know, the passion for what we do. Um, So I hope maybe from this um, we can learn things, too, um, on how better we can serve um, victims um, of, you know, relationship, whatever that is, uh, violence. Yeah, thank you. And I, um, you know, I'd love to hear from Xavier um, and then maybe we'll go Xavier, Ashley and Aurelius, just this same concept of like accountability from the quote unquote system. And when I say the system, it's, I mean, the criminal legal system and like, what does that really mean? And what do we think that, how can we improve the public's perception of accountability in these kinds of cases since they are so rampant. Yeah, this is Xavier again. Um, the the first thing I think about when I hear 10,000 cases. Last year, uh, we did over 10,100 cases came through our unit. That is that's shocking. Um, it's, it's not surprising, but still has that shock value. And one thing that we uh, are teaching when we're teaching about this restorative justice model is that you can't have accountability without support. And um, we can we can correct things and punish things, but actually making sure that it doesn't repeat. I'm very curious of how many of those cases are actually repeat offenders um, of where we can avoid it. The cycle continuing. You can't you can't do that without support. And like, how can a unit of eight people actually have the relationships to support this amount of people? Um, so I think that is one of the first things of why our system um it's not able to hold people accountable that are experiencing this is because the relationship to actually understand why it's happening and what is best for this this uh family that's different from this family is so nuanced and takes really a lot of time and patience that this the the paralysis that just comes from that number of like where do you begin where do you prioritize like that gives me a lot of compassion for the for the cops that are working on this unit um, that it seems very overwhelming. Yeah, I agree. I have that same reaction. Ashley, I don't know if you, yeah, you have a perspective on like this idea of accountability from the system and what that really means for the community. So I like using the word accountability because I'm, when we talked, when I talk with survivors on cases, I don't, or their families, if unfortunately that's the situation, I never like to use the term closure um, because we can't guarantee that. And there's a variety of reasons, which I'm sure we'll like delve into, um, obviously, but there's a variety of reasons within the system. And I think then as well as like an individual community level um, that really makes that hard. Um, I don't think 
as much as I'd love to like say that that's the, you know, the standard and that always happens. It is difficult. And part of it's the unique nature of these cases. Um, and I think that's something that the focus needs to be on is accountability. And what does that look like for each individual case? And um, I think domestic violence in particular, that's critical. And it requires kind of what you're doing right now, right? Like different areas of the community, different groups um, stepping outside and trying to collaborate to figure that out. And until we do that, we're not going to be as effective at accountability as like we should be. I will note just here at the at the beginning uh, of this podcast um, episode that I'm coming from a, a different per- perspective than other folks. Um, you know, I'm a community organizer uh, and the um, philosophy by which I organize is an abolitionist philosophy. So I believe, right, that uh, our organizing efforts need to push us closer and closer uh, to a world and a possibility where we are no longer relying on policing, prisons, jails, surveillance to solve all of the problems within our society, which is what we currently have all of the problems within our state, all of the problems within our community, right? We are given this one singular option, which is call 911, get the criminal legal system involved, and that is justice, right? Um, I'm moving from a different paradigm, right? A different understanding of what is possible uh, and uh, of what is necessary for our communities. And when I say our communities, I'm specifically talking about uh, communities of color, Black communities, uh, LGBTQ communities, right? Marginalized communities who have been disproportionately harmed by the criminal legal system. So I want to name that in various ways. And I also want to name on this specific question that, like, I don't think the criminal legal system provides accountability for so many survivors and victims because accountability isn't necessarily the point. And I think when I see these questions and think about them, right, and restorative and transformative justice, we differentiate between accountability and punishment, right? We say that they're not the same thing, that what our criminal legal system offers is punishment. It's a form of punishment as a consequence for a quote-unquote crime, in this case for the crime or the harm or the violence of domestic violence, intimate partner violence, right? But accountability is something something different, right? Accountability is about repair, it's about transformation, it's about preventing, it's about apologizing, right? It's about self-reflection, right? Things that being locked in a jail cell or a prison cell don't allow, right? Um, accountability is also about power relations, right? Xavier talked earlier about relationships, that for someone to be accountable to something, they have to be in relationship with another person, right? That relationship cannot be a relationship between a power holder and somebody without any power. And the criminal legal system wields a whole lot of power over people, right? Police officers wield a whole lot of power over individuals, right? DAs hold a whole lot of power over individuals, right? And the system is intended to be this way. And so accountability can't really be achieved in that in that sort of context of our criminal legal system, but what can be achieved is punishment. And so what I think we're really talking about is why punishment isn't achieved in so many of these domestic violence situations. And I think it's a number of reasons. Uh, And I think one of the biggest ones is the reality of there are no perfect victims. And I think police officers and um, detectives and prosecutors and lawyers have this conception in their mind of 
what a uh, what a victim looks like and what a, a survivor looks like, right? How they'll be acting, right? And in these particular like domestic violence situations, the survivor and victim is often hysterical, right? Um, and so for a police officer, they're not exactly sure how to react in that in that given situation. And it often ends up either, right, with nobody's arrested. And so there's been really no intervention other than maybe the the abuser has has calmed down or the survivor is arrested, right? Because the abuser is very good at, as we see with this podcast, this person is very good at talking, very good at convincing, very good at at making a case for how he'll do better right? How he'll improve, right? How he'll go to therapy, whatever it is. And it's the same thing with interactions with the police. And so I think that's a, a really big area that we have to begin to to move beyond is that there's no such thing as a, as a sort of perfect uh, Gentile uh, woman victim, right? Um, and that victims exist across the spectrum of, of difference. Um, and our the criminal legal system and policing in particular, um, I think, struggle right, in those situations. Because right then, every cop is turned into a detective, right? And they maybe don't have that 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 sort of training. And so uh, I think that's one piece of it. And and there's a bunch of others that, that maybe we can get to, but I don't want to take too much time. So I'll stop there. No, I, I wanted to chime in and just say, I think that, that the the setting of the definitions that I think is important, right? Because I'm, I definitely am operating from a place. And something that you hit on for me, Aurelius, this isn't my expert panel, but I just wanted to note that like I I have this internal struggle happening during this season about do I think that like prisons are appro an appropriate response to this kind of interpersonal violence when the person simply will not stop? Or is there a world where something better can be happening? And I've been that is an internal struggle I've been having throughout this this season. But I'll let Colleen ask the next question. Yeah, I really want to get to the crux of what you're talking about, Aurelius, but I think there's some other questions we probably need to get to first. But I, too, am having this, like, some people would call it a carceral feminist reaction because I'm coming from a place of, like, this person makes me feel physically unsafe. Like, just the things that this person has done and gotten away with that we that we know about. That's just what we know about. And my first reaction is, like, put them away somewhere else where I can't see it because I don't, I want to feel safe. And um, so I do want to get to that. And I want to talk about that because I think that's where a lot of, like, I'm with you on the abolitionist thing all the way up until we get to Jim Lumen. And then I'm like, no more, I'm done with it. And so I think a lot of people listening to this are, are struggling with the same thing. And it's like, from the legal perspective, in a lot of ways, Jim has gotten quote unquote justice because he got sentenced in several cases. It was out time, but he did get sentenced. Um, he got sentenced to a 10 year plea. Uh, he did get out early on good behavior. And so like the system in a lot of ways has been working as it's supposed to work. And yet we see it just for some fundamental reason does not feel just to people listening. And so, okay, I'll go on to the next question and stop rattling on because everyone's heard my voice enough. Um, but the next, so the next question is like, do you feel like any of this harm could have been prevented? The, the 30 years of harm that's been created by this one individual is honestly kind of striking for me. And it's why we picked this case specifically too, is because it's like, just looking at the cycles of harm, when you look at cycles of harm, it's like, honestly, so many people have been hurt by this one person. 
Um, and so I'll, I'll issue that question first to Ashley and then we'll bounce around. I'm really glad you did because I thought about this a lot. Um, so I'll go ahead and tell you, I see that situation every single day at my job. And I want to, I'm not trying to circle back to other things we just talked about, but like, I am big on like, there are good candidates out there to have alternative courts or to have, maybe we just need to get into treatment and dismiss it. There are a lot of times that that fits the bill. But then every day there are, which is a separate and distinct situation or later maybe is and evolves into something different, but where it's like the case you're talking about, so like Jen, and um, it's odd because I've worked in several like areas in our office, predominantly domestics and sex-related offenses. Um, it's domestics. It, it, we see this on a regular basis where someone may have had 25 protective orders in the state of Oklahoma against them. And just in Oklahoma, maybe I've had someone with 26 prior criminal domestics. And so it's funny because on one hand, my answer is like, yes. And I don't, I don't know what went along the way, but at the same time, I know there's cases that end up on my desk and we try every option and we can't, we don't because of cooperation with cases and things like that, or inability to have certain um, alternative methods, we can't reach an agreement. And I don't, I can't turn over any other stones to get evidence without a victim. Sometimes I can. So the fact is, yeah, it probably was, especially since we try to like now in the last, I'd say mostly in certain places, the last five to 10 years started to try to find new methods um, and means for sentencing and like prosecution. In theory, the answer is probably yes. But, and I see that, I've seen that a lot over the years where they've had that history and nothing was done and you you wonder how that happens. And then there's been ones where we work it up and do the everything we can. And there's just likely because we don't have someone cooperative. I was like, man, this is the time we're finally going to like handle this the way it should be handled. And it's different again, case by case, but particularly in like instances, I've seen people well beyond what Jim's record is. And you're like, this is finally where it stops. Whatever that answer is, we're going to figure it out. And then you can't do your case. Um, and plenty of time we can. But so it's kind of like, I, I want to be able to look at you and say, yes, this could have been prevented. But it's hard to say, I'd be ignoring imperfections in the system if I said that. But the truth is probably, yeah, I don't know if that makes sense. Could you, well, so, and you hit on a couple of things that I think are, are, in that special set of questions we sent just for the DA that maybe you could hit on at this point, like this concept of evidence-based prosecution, which is a term that maybe not all of our listeners know about, if you wanted like to walk them through what that is, how that gets employed, especially in Tulsa County here, if, if it does. And then um, like help us, helping us understand the challenge that you have when you don't have a victim. Cause we do hear that quite fr frankly, like it's, it's a, it's a, it's a thing we hear from DAs all over the state of like, well, if we don't have a victim, what can I do kind of a thing? And so, yeah, I would just, I would give you a chance to talk about some of that. No, I'm really glad you did. Um, so evidence-based prosecution, there's like technical terms. The way I put it is the ability to proceed without a victim's cooperation. Um, because 
I, I don't only count cases that we do as evidence-based, so to speak. Um, I like to take into account once we can, because the amount of pressure on victims and survivors, particularly when they feel the weight of the pressure from an offender, as well as the pressure that this case is on them, it, they feel oftentimes and tell, and they say this, that it, it often feels like it's, well, I don't want it to be me versus him. It's not, it's the state. And taking, even if we can alleviate that weight off of them and say, I could do this without you if at some point you can't. And so we have to, to do evidence-based cases. We have to find hearsay exceptions. So like, just because the she had a handwritten statement or he had a handwritten statement to the cops, I can't admit that in court. And um, I have to find other means. And it usually means a huge investigation, but we do do it frequently. I know Oklahoma's numbers in terms of domestic violence are terrible. I don't. Um, but we, when I took over, we used to have two units in the office. When I took over what was at the time a strictly domestic unit in December of 2020, our goal, our very first goal was identify the problems, fix it. And we took a bunch of initiatives in terms of evidence-based cases. I know Amy Hall and the rest of her unit have been an integral part of that. But basically we have to find a way to do a case without, with the blanket rule of victims' statements to police or anyone else aren't coming in. And so that requires a lot of legal intricacies, um, a lot of 50 page briefs we file, a lot of, of follow up work for our detectives, um, but we do do it. And um, sometimes we do that and there's nothing left, but there are there's plenty of times we try cases and we did one already this year where they're not gonna come to court and that's okay, but Anyways, that was probably more than you asked me to answer, but that's what it is. We just have to look for other means besides a um, victim coming into court. No, thank you. And I know I derailed kind of, we were going to popcorn a little bit about like, could the harm have been prevented? And I, anybody that has a reaction to this concept of evidence-based prosecution, reducing the harm, uh, whoever wants to go next. Yeah, I'll jump in, Xavier, again. I think that, yes, I feel like, all harm could be prevented, right? Um, it's just a matter of, of, are we looking for behavior modification or growth and development? So often when we are reverting to punitive, retributive matters, we're just trying to correct the behavior. Hey, if we're hard on this crime, maybe the next person does, won't do it. And we can spend all day um, doing the would have, should have, could have with Jim Newman, but I'm very interested, what can we do today to prevent the Jim Newman that was born today. Because domestic violence, gender-based violence has been going on for hundreds of years and we're not gonna fix it tomorrow. But what do we need to do to start uh, preparing our society, our community to grow and develop in a place where it's not accepted by any of us? Because we see in these cases that someone knew what was going on, but just kind of turned a blind eye. Why is that? Why, do, why is this so normalized? Um, why is it normalized by men, women, and anyone else on the on the on the gender spectrum? And I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that we treat this macro problem that is just like in our society, it's in our media, it's like it's become so natural to us, but we handle it very individually. Now I'm gonna be mad at you, Jim Newman, even though you were extreme case of what a lot of men 
consistently do. Um, toxic masculinity is rampant in our community. It hurts men and it hurts women, right? And until we get a grip on these bigger things, then this is going to keep happening and become a cycle. And it's like, so that's where like that transformative justice and abolitionist mindset comes from. Because when you are just in a, in a reformer, you're just like, hey, how can we do it better? How can we improve our numbers? Where abolitionists is like, let's step back and like, do we even need this? And what can we imagine that's better that, you know, maybe we have to deal with Jim Newman's in our society today, but we're already dealing with Jim Newman's in our society today. Um, so it's like, whether or not we're like, well, I don't know if I want, if I need prisons to send Jim Newman away, he's not in jail. He's not in prison. So with or without prisons, like we're still dealing with these people on the streets. So the question, you know, is how can we prevent Jim Newman that was born today? That's the question I ask myself. That's the question I just posed to everyone. Yes. It's a great point, Xavier. Um, and yeah, I would just, sort of continue uh, on that line, um, whether it's this specific case or other cases, right, that that Ashley was talking about where people will have 26, 27 um, protective orders against them, right? Um, Jim's case specifically, right, that he spent time out, he spent time, right, like he's had cases, maybe not here in Oklahoma, but he's had cases that have, he's been convicted and the, the violence continues, the harm continues, Right. He's still free. Uh, and the question is, are any of these survivors saying that they've received justice? Right. And so if the answer is no, and this is what our justice system has to provide all these interactions with police officers, right, all these interactions with the court system, right, all these protective orders. Right. And still, right, all of these victims. Now you talked about you, you all have talked to a dozen victims from one person, a dozen victims. Right who are essentially all saying that, no, justice, right? I don't feel whole. I don't feel prepared. I don't feel like justice has been served in this case. And that should be our modus, right? That should be how we're judging these things, right? I think sometimes uh, from prosecutors' lens, it is about whether or not we're going to prosecute this case, whether we can win this case and get the sentence that we want, right? Um, but the, it, what the focus should be on is what the victim wants and needs, right? What the survivor wants and needs and what justice is for them, um, and I think in so many of these cases, what we see with the criminal legal system is that justice isn't being provided. And so the question then is, what else can we be doing? And so when you ask the question of, could this violence have been prevented? And as I'm listening to this podcast and I'm hearing these stories, and it's the same thing when I hear, any, watch any sort of true crime show or podcast or anything, I'm just racking my brain about what are all the interventions? And I'm thinking of millions of interventions that there could have been at any point throughout what you started in like 1998 or something to today, right? We're talking about like almost, uh, we're talking about a quarter of a hundred years, right? We're talking about 25 years. Um, all these places where people could have intervened, could have done something, right? Um, where the violence could have stopped, right? Where like somebody in relationship to him, right? Could have stopped it, right? And so to Xavier's point, it's like, there are other people out in our world, in our community, in our society, right, um, who are also showing some of these behaviors from an earlier place. And it's like, how can we prevent those things, I think, is a is the question that we have to ask ourselves. And then also be thinking about for all of Jim's victims, what does healing and restoration look like for them? Because you have all of these women out here, right, um, who have been harmed and haven't received justice. What does healing look like for them and who owes them that healing? Right. Mm -hmm.
I want to say something because you're like striking such a good chord, which is that I think a lot of us feel like all of those interventions and all of that healing and all of that stuff should happen in the criminal justice system. And the reality of it is, is that probably only 10% of that can happen in the criminal justice system. And the rest of it has to happen in so many other places. It has to happen. And some people would say it has to happen in church. Some people would say it has to happen in the home, in the family. Some people would say it has to happen in Cleveland, Oklahoma. Why was no one saying anything when they knew all of these things were going on? Some people would say it has to happen in therapy or in a restorative justice circle or you know, in Jim's preschool, his teacher didn't intervene when he was drinking all the Cokes out of the vending machine or whatever. It's like, this is what you always talk about, Aurelius. It's like, it's a true community experience. It's like the village is raising this person. And there were a million failures along the way uh, that we can't just blame the criminal justice system, because like you're saying, Ashley, it's like, we can't give you closure. We can do what we need to do as a state as prosecuting from the position of being the state and saying, I can deliver punishment to this person to keep the community safe for the period of time that I can get. But that's where like your obligation stops. And can I clarify something? This is Ashley, sorry. And I did not mean to interrupt. Um, You said something interesting and I'm taking notes because I'm ADHD and I don't want to forget. But so... And I, you know, I can't speak on behalf of everybody in the state of Oklahoma who works in government, can't do that. And I know with our team, and we have a lot of, we have a lot of mental health focused grants between my whopping four felony prosecutor team. Um, But we like, diversion's a big part of it. Um, We have programs, because the truth of the matter is substance use and, um, is one of two what we've identified of our biggest contributing factors, right? Not an excuse for violence, but is certainly a big piece of that, a contributing factor. And there's a lot of times where we get someone to do a program or we get them help, but because they weren't receiving those needs earlier on, they're sometimes, not always, we're not going to see as much of a success rate this far down the line. And you sit there and go, how and I it's it seems like I shouldn't be shocked that I am you sit there and you look at all these things and you go how did it take the criminal justice system getting involved for this to be the first time a lot of people um are even remotely getting a chance at things they need and I think for both offenders and for victims though it's the lack of community resources and the what I think at least what has been related to me is also a fear of taking advantage of the ones that are available. Um, but there's a lot of times we try to divert those cases to, to get people the help they need, but we're so far along and that's not been an option before. And now it's not going to be what it needs to be for that person. So I don't know if that was way off topic. I just wanted to throw that. I wanted to throw it to Detective Hall and see if she has a reaction to that. Do you respond to a lot of cases like this where there's substance use involved? Do you see that? Do you see that as a big problem? It is. Um, you know, either um, alcohol, um, you know, all the way to whatever illicit narcotic is their drug of choice. 
um, you know, back to, um, you know, can we prevent, you know, is there anything other than the criminal justice system um, to keep this violence from, from happening? Um, I think it's one of those things that we would have to live in somebody's house because it is, it is, it is an intimate crime most times behind closed doors. And there's still that stigma um, of, you know, what happens behind closed doors stays there. You don't talk about that. Um, It's embarrassing, um, you know, and then a, you know, victim survivor um, is, it's the cycle of violence. You know, I love you. It's going to get better. I'm sorry. It won't happen again. And it does. Um, Ashley and I just had a trial uh, about a month ago. And that was uh, one thing that that she asked me that I think strikes with most people that know anybody that's um, been any kind of part of a, a domestic violent situation or incident um, is that it's personal. You know, why don't people uh, report it? Because they don't want other people to know. You know, they don't want to go through the process. They don't want to drag out you know, what could be several years of having to come to court or testify or having to give whatever information to whomever asks. Um, you know, and back to what Xavier and Aurelius talked about, um, I kind of was asking before we started, um, you know, hey, I'd love to know more about what you do because just like anybody, I don't know what I don't know. And if there is something that I can offer um, to a victim, victims' families, um, you know, even a, you know, somebody that's named as a suspect or defendant, um, you know, hey, or I call Ashley or somebody in her office and say, hey, you know, here's what I've got, but this may be available to them. What do you think? Um, or another resource. I'm all about, um, you know, people working outside of the box, not the traditional arrest, go to court, go to prison or jail, whatever it may be. Um, But I think, you know, kind of to summarize all that is we have got to work as a team, whatever that team is, the community, um, law enforcement, prosecution, um, community activists, churches, whomever that is, um, I think is really, really important because who knows um, that, you know, victim, family, defendant, whoever they are, than where they live. And those that that are around them all the time, um, and I think again that's that's where we all have to work together. Um, you know, Aurelius and I don't do the same job, but my gosh, how much I could learn from him, and how better to do my job and to serve my community um, than from somebody that's out talking to people all the time, and you know, in a different position than what I am. I think it's wonderful. Yeah, I wanted I wanted to just follow up, Detective Paul, and get your perspective on just, you know, you've been a law enforcement officer for the better part of what three decades was it now? Close to. Uh, I'm I met about 16, 17 years with the police department. Twenty three with the city. I was a dispatcher oh. before I came out of the department. Yeah. Okay, great. I'm great. not that old. <laughs> I was going to say when you said it earlier, I was like, wow. It's <laughs> <laughs> Jim. No. Um, but I wanted to just get your perspective a little bit on. You know, you have been in the field for a long time. You have been doing this traditional law enforcement role for a long time. And um, Aurelius and Xavier have, I think, incredible perspectives on just 
a total transformation of the system. And I'd be curious to hear what you think could be transformative in its own way within the system. Do you have ideas about what you would change about the way we respond to particularly domestic violence crimes in as the system is now or in a transformative way, changing the system in any way you want to? I think depending on which side you're looking at it from. Um, from the strict criminal justice side, um, I think the black and white is, um, you know, at least in Oklahoma, are the the punishment for DV crimes is minimal. Um, you know, as opposed to a, a stranger crime, um, it, it's mind boggling to me. Um, but I think the bigger picture is what we just talked about with um, Xavier and Aurelius and um, man, it takes all of us. And that's where we have to go. I think um, at least in my experience that people haven't delved into that. Hey, let's talk to other people, other resources. Hey, how can I better do my job? Um, I think you generally speaking, have to push egos aside and say, you know what? I don't know everything. How can I do better? Because, you know, again, we don't do this job for, you know, just because um, you you can't, um, you have to have a passion for it again. Um, and to do that, it takes talking to people like Aurelius and Xavier in those positions. Um, hey, give me resources. Let's talk about what you do. Hey, what I, you know, what can I do? What can I offer? Where, you know, where can I send people that I'm not sending them? What are your ideas um, to weave that into what we do or how we can change things? And it's such a Gordian, I'm sorry, I won't ca capitalize. It's such a Gordian knot for me. And so I want, I'd love to hear from Aurelius and Xavier, and then we'll hit Ashley last about just like, where do we start? Like, what do we do? I'm, I like, can't figure it out. I have been puzzling over this for, for months now. And like, where do we even begin? Yeah, it's Xavier again. I think that um, one thing I do want to kind of, I'm going to hit on that, but want to go back. Um, I'm, I'm very curious about the drug use and the violence and how those both can be exist in this situation, but one not lead to the other. Um, because I, I have a social work background. I know that, you know, violence is a protective mechanism and so is drug use, right? And so if someone's just dealing with a lot of trauma, dealing with poverty, they may be using both of those as coping mechanisms. Um, but it doesn't necessarily say the drug use is the reason why this person became violent because there's plenty of people that use drugs that never become violent. So what is the difference, right? Um, and there's people, people who are violent that never use drugs, right? Um, and I think that is where we're kind of going back, where we have to like have, be in relationship, right, with the people in those situations to actually understand, oh, this person is using violence for this reason. In order for us to hold them accountable and support them, this is what they need. Um, and I think as far as like, where do we start? I think there's a big scarcity mindset within all of us of like taking the time to actually sit down and have a, have a conversation and really imagine the future. Has we have to start getting out of our scarcity mindset of the problem is so big the problem like you know we can't even get women to show up for course and it's like but why can't we just ask them why right I know we can all have our assumptions of why um, and there's plenty of research why but like 
we see that as a as a loss because they're not willing to prosecute to to stand up in court instead of trying to solve the issues in which that is the reason why they're not showing up in order to play the long game of like what what is keeping um, our tactics from working and how can we change things along the way. Um, but I also want to say that like you know we talked about how um, everyone has a role in it of like. We need education to be on point. We need family life to be on point. We need, you know, the, you know, religious section of our community. We need just all these different parts. But, you know, our criminal legal system gets way more than their part, right? So if they are only 10% of the solution, but take up a larger part, and I'm not even talking about just financially, I'm talking about what Aurelius was talking about earlier, where like, we only assume that we're supposed to call the cops in this situation. So even our mindset, our beliefs and what we think is we're supposed to do, what we turn to, um, we think of the criminal legal system. And so there's just a belief monopoly that, you know, that we have to have in order to continue to fund the cops, which I feel like not only is that harmful to actually solving these issues, but I think it's also harmful to the police officers themselves because Yes, they get a bigger portion of the pie, but they're expected to fix to to eat the whole pie, and they're they can't fix the whole thing. They don't have all the resources and skills. They do need the community, but we have charged them to do the whole thing, and that's why even with the large budgets, there's still a scarcity of like we're still overwhelmed, and I think it's just a sign that it's taken on too much, not a lack of. Yeah, the expectation in the community, I guess, that like uh, that the that police and the criminal legal system carry the burden of fixing the whole the whole thing, when in fact it is the final point in a system that where there should have been, to Aurelius's point, interventions all along the way. Um, so, Aurelius, I'll, I'll get you. I'll let you just speak on that for a minute if you want to. Yeah, I would. I would. This is Aurelius. Um, I would say, you know, that it's a lot. And I know like when you get all of this and you're like listening to this podcast and hearing about all these terrible things that this guy has done um, and seeing all of these ways that that the system and people have failed uh, these victims and survivors, it can be like, oh, so much has to change. Like, where do we start? So I think that is real and valid. Um, I also think like I also just want to acknowledge earlier, Colleen and Leslie, you both like um, you know, with abolition until like we talk about this case, right? And I get that, right? Like I, I want to acknowledge that that those feelings are so valid of like this person has done terrible things to a lot of people over a lot of time, has evaded the law in so many ways, like they need to be punished. Um, and I think for, for as long as we um, continue to sort of pull out individual cases, right? Um, and look at how gross they are, how terrible they are um, for a systemic problem. Again, this alludes earlier, me and Xavier just back and forth on each other. This alludes earlier to what Xavier was talking about, right? Like this this individual case as the sort of barometer for all cases when it isn't, right? But we're talking about an entire system, an entire structure. Um, we're we're, we're going to miss the ball, right? Because not everybody who is in jail or prison right now on domestic violence charge. Not everybody who has ever been behind bars, not everybody who has been violent, right, has acted in the ways with the patterns, patterns of behavior that Jim did, right? So like, it's it's not that this sort of singular case is everybody. And I think 
at times when we get these really bad cases, right? Um, we get the Jeffrey Dahmers of the world, right? Like serial killers and things of that nature. That's like, oh, now everybody who's locked up and incarcerated are these people. And I think we do great harm in doing that, right? Because we dehumanize everybody, right? Jim is a monster and thus everybody is a monster and we're scared, right? And so I think we have to acknowledge those feelings and also acknowledge that like, like lead with curiosity of like, why? Why is Jim doing all of these things? Like, why has all of this happened? Even if, and this is Adrian Marie Brown, she says, lead with the question, why? Even if the answer to that question scares the hell out of you. Even if the answer to that question is like, I have a yearning, a deep, deep yearning for control over my sexual partners. Even if the answer to that question is like, I am an incredibly jealous person and thus certain things trigger me and I, I get incredibly violent, right? Even if we can't compute that, but if we have that answer to the question why, then we can think about how we can actually prevent and stop these things from happening in that specific case, but also in different cases. And then I would also just say that like, it's already happening, right? So like there are we talked earlier about the, the terrible rates of domestic violence in Oklahoma. There are so many cases where people already, survivors already, are not calling the police, don't want to go the criminal legal route, want to do other things. There are already so many stories of survivors who are finding safety and finding care in the community, in their small networks, right, of friends and family who are protecting them, right? So for every case where families weren't there to support or or people in the community, friends of the abuser weren't there to intervene, right? There are also cases where people are, right? And I think what we have to do is continue, right? Um, to educate people and build people's skills to where they feel comfortable intervening. Because I think you talk to a lot of people and they're like, I have no idea what I would do in a situation where I see, uh, you know, Jim banging somebody's head on on the wall and I'm just walking past. I have no idea what I would do other than call 911, right? What if that person was equipped to intervene in that situation and, and prevent the violence from continuing, at least in that moment, right? And then there was some other intervention, right? What if there was a community-based mobile unit who was particularly trained, right, uh, in violence interruption, right, and in supporting people and being accountable, right, that didn't lead, right, to a jail cell and, and, and you know, a, a prolonged prison sentence, which I think is what, you know, sort of the prototypical sign of justice is in these cases. Um, but what if there was something different? And there is and there can be, right? But it's also the reality that when we talk about, like Detective Hall was talking earlier about there's a need for this sort of cross-pollination and for us to be talking. But one thing is being funded in this state, right? The criminal legal system is what is being funded to address these things. And so it's not just, I agree with Xavier, right? It is that our mindsets need to shift, right? That that's something else is possible. But it's also that our policymakers' priorities need to shift, right? That at the local level, at the county level, and at the state level, what we are funding and what we are prioritizing needs to shift in this state, right? Because I think, you know, this is, you know, FLM, we're an educational organization. I, I believe education is a, an incredibly powerful tool for change, right? I think so much, right? Oklahoma ranks uh, at the top of the charts for incarceration rates. We rank 49th in education, right? What if we focus for the next decade to get from 49th to top 20, to top 10, like, 
like our governor likes to say, right? Uh, what if we focused on that and put our money where our mouths is, focused our resources and really worked to fund teachers and professional development and counselors and student supports, right? And what if that education included conversations about social emotional learning and vulnerability and consent and bodily autonomy, right? What if we were talking to our young boys, right, about some of these things, right? Um, these are the sort of possibilities when we move beyond just focusing on and putting all of this money into the criminal legal system. These are the possibilities that are provided. And I would again say that like with the, you know, FLM has a men's group. We have a men's accountability group, right? Where we bring men in the community together to actually discuss these very things, right? To talk about how toxic masculinity is harmful to other people and to ourselves, right? And how we can begin moving to a more authentic masculinity, right? And so I also just want to make the plug that men have a deep, deep responsibility for gender based violence, for ending gender based violence, because by and large, cisgender men are the perpetrators of these forms of violence. And so we also have the responsibility and I would say the honor, right, to uh, disengage from, uh, you know, these problematic forms and violent forms of masculinity to begin practicing something better. Don't get me fired up about education funding because we'll go, I'll go off the rails on this, on this episode. <laughs> but no, I agree. I agree with a lot of the things that you're saying and suggesting. And I think um, I appreciate that everybody here is is in this place of like openness of wanting to learn from one another and hear about new ideas for tackling this problem. And so, Ashley, I'd like to kick it to you to give you a chance to um, uh, talk about just like innovations that you think could make a difference. And also, if you can, like hit on like BIP, the Batterers Intervention Program, like how that gets used, what you think is great about it, what's not so great about it, just some of those thoughts if you have the chance to work them in. Yeah, and so this may take me a second because I tried to organize kind of my thoughts because as Aurelius brought up some good points, um, I kind of wanted to touch on. Um, I think first and foremost, like blanket statement, there's not going to be a one fix all. It's conversations like this, right? Um, and in case I didn't say it, it's like, Completely honored to be a part of this because I think this is really great what you guys are doing. Um, and I wish more of this happened. Um, so I, I don't think that there's like a one fix all, but and but I think that there's some, some points kind of like I want to build off because I think that's the main thing like we can learn um, from each other. And th the fact of the matter is, yes, like our incarceration rates are through the roof in Oklahoma. And I'm big on when we can find people to like. A, community resources to prevent us getting here in the first place. Um, and then B, getting the resources in place so people are successful and never end up here down the road at all. Big fan of all of those things. But the fact is like Oklahoma is lacking in a lot of what we need to start to see that change. And now certain things, I, I do think this, obviously. Um, as much as I talk about the incarceration rate, I'll tell you right now, most of that is not on domestic violence because I, in Oklahoma, uh, if you've got a felony strangulation, you are one to three years. Not a single domestic violence crime is an 85% crime. And again, me operating under the premise daily that like a lot of people don't need to go to DOC, but the ones that do, we, you, you can't almost because your ranges of punishment are lower I stab a stranger, I'm going to get a lot less time. I'm going to get a lot more time on an 85% crime than if it's an intimate partner, which is a non-85% crime. That's wild. 
And so I, I don't think it's accurate that that's, that it's DV cases that are a big contributor to that because, and I, I think Amy can vouch for this too. There, there's just not a lot of leeway for when there is a case that that may, we may determine that may be the appropriate thing. I realize not everybody is going to think that, but um, so it's, it's really, really hard. Um, and that kind of brings me to the bit point. Um, batter's intervention is a wonderful concept. And I truly, I do believe that, and I've watched people that I did not think were going to do great on probation. And I wanted them to totally exceed at batter's intervention and drug treatment and come in and go, I can't believe I ended up here. I don't want to, I've learned and it's not just, oh, this was miserable. I'm not going to do it again. That doesn't help. It's got to be that they're getting tools and resources and they can articulate that. But the fact is, you know, coercive control, you know, which is a huge part of domestic violence. When you take someone who isn't wanting to get help, but wants to get their program and finish their probation and you put them in a room with someone they're supposed to convince has rehabilitated them, you're a lot of times we don't get a good measure on when someone should be graduating a program like that because we've landed here because of course control and you can employ those same tactics in many capacities. Um, so I am, I do think rehabilitative programs are good. I do think the concept of batteries intervention is good. I think we need changes particularly at least, and I can only speak to where we are. I think there are changes that would be beneficial, not just to victims, but to offenders too. And overall, we'd see less repeat cases because it kind of got brought up about Jim's case being a barometer. I will tell you, and it, it every case is different, um, obviously. You may have somebody with no history who you don't expect then just reoffends a bunch. And we may have some with terrible history that doesn't, but the truth is we, we see gyms on it like a daily basis. And that's because of that, like course of control, you're not going to disengage from that without resources you need and you have to want it. And that's kind of the complication with the court system. People, you can't force someone to go to rehab, right? Like they got to want to get the help. And so it's only going to be effective for people who want the help. Um, and I don't know what the answer is to that. So I can't really answer that, but I can say that I think that there is effectiveness in those programs and I've seen it. It's just, oh, it's not work. I don't know that it works for the majority of who ends up there necessarily. Um, it's, it's hard to know. Um, I think part of the problem is like, I wanted to take on a, like a victim focused approach and I, at the end of the day, it's going to be about a just outcome. There was kind of a conversation about, you know, it needs to be about what victims want. If that were the case, none of these cases would go hardly. Or someone that doesn't need incarceration would be incarcerated. And that's why the first thing out of my mouth is I tell victims, you know, you have a voice in this, but it is my, it is my decision because I have to also determine what's a just outcome from an emotionally neutral spot and from a spot of like, What's going to serve the public ultimately? Uh, do they need a chance at rehab? Do they? Is this a case that merits incarceration? Um, but one of the biggest things I see all the time that lands everybody right back in court, sometimes as a victim, sometimes as later an offender, 
is like we have it's a lack of resources, right? I've had people in shelters who are negative seven vision and they don't have contacts. Guess what? It's no one's job to give them that. I can't give them that as much as I would love to do that. Like, and would if I had the go ahead, but we like, we don't have not only not enough resources for like offenders that keep us from getting to the point that we even have to say offender. We don't have enough community resources for victims to leave that situation. I mean, if someone's in a relationship like this and they, even if they don't involve police, but it's violent and they want to leave. First of all, the emotional connection is going to make that less likely already. Second of all, okay, so I'm supposed to tell a 19 year old girl to break her lease and pay that money. She doesn't want to tell her family, get her belongings moved and get on her feet. That's impossible. And I mean, that's just like one minuscule example of like what we see on a daily basis that also keeps them from engaging in the this process, the criminal justice process. And I'll tell you this too, like my number one concern, at least by the time a case lands at, the, at our office, my concern is, are you safe? And I tell them it is your decision if you come to court. My concern is doing what's going to keep you or other people safe, not you coming to court. I would love that. That would expedite matters, certainly. And we could probably reach an agreement. But at the end of the day, if someone looks at me and says it's best if I'm not involved, that's what I want to know. Like, and we will do it if we can without you, if that's what's appropriate. Um, But there's just there's just a glaring. I remember I've called my mom before. And uh, we had a lady who was evicted from her apartment because she got out of the hospital after a domestic and she had her dog and she was in a wheelchair and she tied a scarf around it and they wouldn't let her in because it's in his name. And she goes, Miss Ashley, like, what do I do? I don't have anywhere to go. I don't have any clothes. And I remember calling my mom that night and going, the need is so large and I'm only allowed to help in like a certain capacity. And I think like this glaring lack from even the point of education brought up the lack of resources from education to um, outlets for young men to talk about these things to resources to victims it's just it's debilitating our state and on top of that you know basically it's that it's that we don't have what we need any of us to prevent I don't want to ever see someone again in the criminal justice process victim or a suspect etc And I think all we can do is know that there's not a blanket answer. It's collaborating. It's training law enforcement. I mean, I've done a lot of trainings on like trauma-informed interactions with victims as well as like, I'm in charge of our CLEAP training for domestic violence for the state for at least some agencies when they ask me to. And like, we talk a lot about ACEs and talking about, you know, why people are hesitant to report or why you may not be getting all the information. That's just a piece of the puzzle. We have to educate other prosecutors to be cognizant of both offender and victim needs. We have to work with our partners like Divis and other agency partners like DHS. We need to sit down in groups like this. And I don't know what the end answer is, but I know like what this, what you're doing right now and, you know, further collaboration with all these agencies or even in a daily professional capacity, that's where we start. And I don't think any of us have answers, but I I think that that at this point is the only answer.
We'll give each of you like two minutes for closing remarks. I know this has not been long enough and we'll do, maybe we'll do experts part two at the end of the season or something, but um, I had something I wanted to say. Um, okay. I'm going to just give it to you, Xavier, to do your two minute closing and maybe it'll come back to me because there's so much going on up there. Yeah, that's good. Um, I think when we have new conversations, it's important that we have the conversations that everything's always connected and interconnected. Um, so actually started uh, with saying that people are not going to jail for domestic violence. And that's correct. That's not what most of the people are locked up for. But we do know drug abuse or drug misuse or drug dependency is. I'm very curious. I don't have the answer. But how many people who are locked up in our jails specifically in Oklahoma has an A score of seeing their parents in a domestic violence situation. And like, those are the things we don't, it's not common language. And we live in a very rugged individualism, individualistic society that like, until it's in my face, it doesn't impact me, but it it does impact you. I have two little girls, eight and 11, and I'm very fearful of what kind of relationships are they gonna grow up in um, if, not because of the way I'm raising them or not raising them, but if they find and meet a guy who was impacted by trauma or, or you know, was not, you know, invited to a, a, a healthy masculinity conversation, like I'm invested in this because I don't want to see my daughters fall down that path of being a victim. And we know that this stuff happens in cycles, that people who, you know, grew up in a household with domestic violence are a lot more likely to, to be um, perpetuators of domestic violence when they grow up. And so like, there has to be something that we need to really examine of like, why does this cycle exist and how can we disrupt it? Um, and I know we've hit this so many times, but like, you know, this is a, this is a large systemic historical problem. It's not going to be solved individualistically. Um, just doing one problem at a time, one person at a time, it's going to take everyone being, knowing that, Hey, who I vote for, matters in this situation because i can vote for someone that's going to be strictly law and order and it's going to put a lot of funding where it doesn't need to go and then that's going to make my daughters more susceptible right so like this is a conversation that impacts all the parts of our lives it's just not a domestic violence conversation it's a it's a conversation about community and healing and and justice really like real justice detective hall you're up for your two minutes of closing remarks all the things I want to say in two minutes. <laughs> um, I, I think in summary, um, uh, what everybody has said is education, education, education. Um, Xavier brings up a fantastic point of um, all the kids that have been um, witness to um, domestic violence. Um, again, I go back to when we started, um, and I had done a, a panel for, uh, Divis and there was a Tulsa world article. And one, one of the things I brought up during that panel, um, was the Alyssa Fielding case and, um, the defendant on that Colby Wilson, um, ultimately was, um, arrested, sentenced for, um, homicide times two. Um, it wasn't only her, but it was her unborn child that died. 
um, and uh, during a previous pretty egregious um, assault prior to the homicide, um, officers went to arrest Colby and at his mother's house and his mom looked at the officers um, and said, um, you know, it, it probably came from when uh, he witnessed his dad beat me. Um, and so, I mean, what a fantastic point of, you know, how many of these kids are really um, getting the the help, um, the mentors, whatever that may be at, at that level. Um, I know all the training that I've been through, um, especially as of recent, that comes up a lot, um, you know, of nobody looks at what happens to these kids um, and the trauma they've experienced growing up. Um, and then it goes into um, their adulthood and then the victims and survivors of their abuse. And it's just, it's cyclical. Um, it, and I think um, all in all, we all as a community, again, you know, churches, community leaders, uh, criminal justice, whoever that may be, all need to work together. Um, there, there needs to be that collaborative effort for us to figure out what what can we do better. Um, and one of the supervisors uh, that used to work here now retired, um, one of his mottos still today is save the six-year-olds. Um, what can we do um, from the children uh, going forward? Um, but again, you know, we, we need to have these conversations like we're having now. Um, specifically if we're going to be talking about domestic violence and, and how we can do better. Okay. Closing two minutes from Ashley. I love the point that was brought up about the ACEs score and how often do we see that? And anytime like a new report comes across my desk, I'd look at what history said, right. And the number of times, like I see a suspect's name, but they were a minor on a protective order petition. That's, most of the time, at least when we see serial offenders, um, where they grew up around it. And it, when we talked earlier about, like I'd mentioned that substance use issues were kind of one of two big overlapping factors we identified another one's gang violence. And I think at the heart of like all of that is just the problems are so broad that we're at a point where we've got to go, how can we prevent someone from getting help for the first time because they're in the criminal like justice system. How can we keep victims and offenders like from ever getting to the point where I have to know what their names are or Detective Paul? And I think the truth is that that should be everybody's goal um, is stopping it before it gets to this point, I think. And I think in some ways, unless I'm getting it wrong, I think we all agree on that. And I think the only way we start to do that and make those changes is talking to each other um, on every level and a community coming together, or we're not going to be able, we're not only not going to be able to heal, we're going to have, we're not going to be able to prevent the need for like further healing down the road unless we do that. And so that's kind of it. And thank you guys for doing this, but that's all. Thank you. Okay. Aurelius, I'm letting you do the last two minutes, last two minutes. Um, yeah, so much more to share uh, and discuss and talk about. I, you know, my closing things would just be that like it's possible, right? Um, so much of the work that I do um, in 
organizing people, trying to bring people together to push for a common cause is convincing people and encouraging people and supporting people and understanding that it's possible, that change is possible, that something different is possible, that ending violence is possible, um, that people are redeemable, right? That people who have been incredibly violent, uh, who have been perpetrators of intimate uh, partner violence, who have been perpetrators of sexual assault, are redeemable. And that, I think, is hard, especially when you're on a podcast talking about somebody who was reoffended so many times and evaded justice. But it's true, right? This person is redeemable, can be accountable to the um, immense amount of violence that he caused all of these women and their families and the communities that they're a part of, right? That accountability is possible and that restorative and transformative justice can work in domestic violence situations, right? It has worked. I've done it, right? And people all across the country have done it, right? Um, and so I, I want to say that. And then I also want to say when we think about these really heinous cases, right? And for all of them that are occurring in our community, I propose a question, right? If you throw somebody who has been violent, incredibly violent to another person, another human being into a place, right? Into a place with four walls where violence happens routinely on the daily, perpetually, nonstop, which are Oklahoma's jails and prisons, right? And then they get out because they're going to get out by and large, most of these folks who are charged of these things, right? We see in this particular case, they go in, they get out, right? Maybe they spend a couple of years, right? They're going to get out. So you throw a person who's been violent into an incredibly violent institution that is a jail or a prison, how are they going to come out of that place? And that's a question. I have thoughts. <laughs> I think the answer is that they're going to be more violent, right? That they're going to be even angrier because they've had to survive every single day fighting and being violent in that place, right? They're going to come out and they're going to be angry at whoever put them into that place. And they're going to give revenge, not on a DA or a prosecutor or on a cop, but they're going to give revenge on, on somebody close to them, on a family member, on a lover, right? And so when we think about the cycle of violence, we also got to think about that the cycle of violence includes the violence of jails and prisons, right? And that we're not preventing or intervening on that system of violence if we're putting a violent person, a person who has been violent, into a violent place. And so we got to be talking about community-based alternatives that are pushing people towards accountability and intervening as a proper response and another response that is properly funded by the state, one. And two, we also have to be talking significantly more about prevention in, in these cases. I know that's also a hard pill to swallow because it's like, but this dude is out here who's done all this terrible stuff. And we're talking about prevention, but it's true, right? It's like, we got to be talking about preventing the next one, uh, preventing the people who are still out here causing these harms and intervening on that. And so I, I, I would just, you know, want to drop that, that um, it's possible and it's happening and we can do it and we can do more of it. And we have to push people in power to see it, right? To see the vision, to see the possibility, and then to fund it. Okay, I remembered what I was going to say as I was listening to you. But a couple of minutes back, you said, that it's not good to focus on individual stories always because sometimes they can sensationalize things that are macro issues. And I just wanted to say that the point of this podcast has always been to use individual stories as a fractal into our collective experience. And while there are things that Jim does that are very particularized to him, there are experiences that his victims have had 
that are collective experiences that a lot of women in Oklahoma have had. And our goal has never been to drag him or to say that he needs a longer time inside or to say that he didn't get what's coming to him or anything retributive or punish, punishment oriented towards him necessarily. But the point has always been to give a voice to so many people who have been made voiceless and to collectively like reckon with what's happened because there was really no institutional response for these folks that have have come to the institution asking for something that they didn't get. And I just love this conversation. I want to like have you guys over for dinner and like do this every Sunday night or something, because I think we could really solve the world's problems, but I just want to thank you guys so much for your time. And I'll let Leslie have the final word. Yeah, I get my, I get my final two minutes as the non-expert who's just been learning this whole time. And I think for me again, and you know, Aurelius, you named this, it's like, carceral feminism is is honestly I guess where I fall on this particular issue and I and I struggle with the idea of like redeemability for certain people I struggle with that it's hard for me to conceptualize it because I do um you know I just the the level of violence here has been so prolific and um but there's this like little, there's this part of me that wants, just wants to go, but yeah, that's really what it is though. People are redeemable. They are. And so this internal struggle for me in this case in particular, you know, I, I want Detective Amy Hall to like kick in my door in the moment of need and be there when the thing is going down. Like I, I want that to know that that's out there and to know and feel, and feel safe because of that. But at the same time, I, I want none of these institutions. Oh no, I think her battery died. It happened so fast, but I'll finish her sentence for her because we're together so often that I know what she was about to say. And it's that I want us all to work together so that we don't need Ashley and Amy to do the jobs they're doing right now. Like let's work you guys into retirement <laughs> in a good way, not in like a, I'm coming for your job, but in a way of like, we we don't need you guys to respond to 10,000 cases anymore. Let's get you down to five. Let's get you down to 2,500. Let's get you down to zero. Like that should be the goal. And I, I think that you guys are the people to do it. So again, thank you. I know that Leslie really wanted to be here for that last five seconds. We want to give a big thank you to the Tulsa Police Department, the Tulsa County DA, to the Foundation for Liberating Minds, and to Restorative Justice Institute of Oklahoma for sending those representatives to engage in that discussion with us. We really feel like that could have gone on for another three hours. We'd like to do it again sometime. So thank you guys for participating and just helping share your expertise with the public. These are difficult questions and there are no easy answers. Next week on Panic Button. We're hearing about the culmination of all of these events for one of the survivors we've been talking about. Her name's Kara. And when she realized that other women were going to go on to be hurt, and she realized that the system was not going to intervene, she took matters into her own hands. You can find links to pictures, documents, and all our sources in the show notes of this episode. 
These cases serve as a reminder of the devastating consequences of domestic violence and the importance of seeking help if you or someone you know is a victim. If you are in immediate danger, please call 911 or your local emergency number. For confidential support and resources, you can reach out to the National Domestic Violence Hotline at 1-800-799-7233. Thank you for listening to Panic Button, Operation Wildfire, and for joining us in shedding light on the importance of ending domestic violence for good. I'm Colleen McCarty. And I'm Leslie Briggs. Panic Button is a production of Oklahoma Appleseed Center for Law and Justice. We're recorded at Bison and Bean Studios in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Our theme music is by Guillaume. Additional editing is provided by The Wave Podcasting. Our music supervisor is Rusty Rowe. Special thanks to our interns, Kat and Allison. To learn more about Oklahoma Appleseed or donate to keep our mission of fighting for the rights and opportunities of every Oklahoman a reality, go to okappleseed.org.